0: Hi,
1: I'm Sam Edis and I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
0: This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys.
1: Together we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors and leaders of the world's most iconic
0: brands. Welcome to our 2022 season with all new episodes every Thursday and join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast.
1: Today we bring you the story of Amanda Knox, a Seattle college student who spent almost four years in an Italian prison following her wrongful conviction for the 2007 murder of Meredith Kircher, a fellow exchange student with whom she shared an apartment.
0: I think for most people who think of spending a semester abroad, right, you had really fought your family for the opportunity to go abroad, and it was going to be financially difficult, and it was going to be a huge departure from your life as a University of Washington student, but they really embraced your adventure. And I think maybe if you could share with us what your experience was in terms of when you got to Italy and what you were expecting.
2: So one thing is that I grew up in a multicultural household um, in the sense that my mom was born in Germany. Um, my oma is my oma. <laughs> She's like, I, I I technically am a born and raised American, but I grew up eating, you know, goulash and riladen and schwäckchenknödel. And so I had an appreciation for the fact that there are other places and other kinds of people and other ways of living and other foods and other languages out there in the world. I never like had this sense of like, oh, the entire world eats hamburgers and speaks English. So I, I understood and appreciated that the world was way bigger than what I had access to necessarily in my own small ecosystem that I grew up in. And my family also really supported me exploring both my my heritage, but also just the curiosity of other other people's and other languages and other places. And so when we when I decided that I wanted to study abroad, they were really happy for me. They were also concerned because I had grown up in an environment where my entire extended family was right next to me within walking distance and that I had not really ever had experience living alone before. This was, you know, like uh, even when my parents had talked before of me studying abroad, like the idea was that I would go stay with my aunt in Germany and then I would go to school like we had been talking about me going and potentially spending a year of high school in Germany and living with my aunt. So like it wasn't so much the other place that was the the scary part. It was Amanda's a 20 year old sheltered kid and she's going to go live by herself for the first time. And of course, like they tried to set me up and and had conversations with me about, okay, like you know what to do when you get sick, right? Like, can you go to the hospital? Do you know how to access your health insurance? Like, do you even know that you have health insurance? Because I've never had to ask you to like deal with that before. So like, these are the kinds of conversations that we were having. And I did have a little bit of that, like not just culture shock of arriving in in a culture that I was not as familiar with, but also the shock of like being alone and, and on my own and taking care of myself for the first time. I had this feeling of like, I have to be the adult and, and take care of myself and be a go-getter and da um, So like the first thing I did was um, very studiously, went right to school, signed up for my classes, got my visa, like I, I did ba the checklist. I even got a little like side job so that I would have like spending money And got myself an apartment like it was all happening. And I I felt very, very large and in charge, like I was a responsible person. And, you know, my parents worrying was clearly not an issue. (laughs) And uh, and I made friends and I saw that the college world has its ups and downs, like there's some good parts and some bad parts, as we all know. And you don't have to be abroad in order to encounter those kinds of things like, you know, kids have bad experiences in college when they go to frat parties and, and stuff like that. Like, you know, there are moments where we get vulnerable, where people are testing boundaries and where sometimes boundaries are crossed in ways that are are not uncomfortable. I certainly had a few experiences like that when I was over in Perugia at one point um, Someone offered to give me a ride home on his Vespa because I had, like, stayed late at um, at the bar that I was working at and didn't want to walk home in the dark. And the guy said, oh, yeah, sure, I'm a friend of, you know, these British girls and, like, I'll just give you a, a ride home. No worries. So I plunked down on his Vespa and then he proceeds to drive me not to my house but to his and refuses to take me back to my house, um, even though I don't know where I am and I have to like yell at him basically to let to take me home. So I, I had like things like that happen while I was there that certainly um, gave me pause, but nothing that like, you know, was out of the norms of possibility. Could we talk for a moment about your apartment? Because
0: I thought that the way you describe your sister Deanna and you going ahead and and finding your apartment, and then visiting your aunt. And uh, it seemed like when you were going to arrive there, everything would be set. And even the way you described your apartment
2: was so idyllic. Can you share a little bit about the the situation you had set up for yourself? Yeah, I mean, it was idyllic, and it did feel like everything was falling into place in a really perfect way. Because, like, you know, I the first time I went and visited the school that I was going to be studying at. Right outside was a young woman who was putting up a, a like her phone number for a room for let. And I immediately just talked to her straight away. And she said, oh, yeah, the room's like right over here where just a few steps away from the university. It's in this like beautiful little cottage that's overlooking the valley. And you can see all the we have fig trees in the garden. And I was like, good Okay, like, that's amazing. (laughs) Sure. And like we had coffee and hit it off and and immediately right then and there made an agreement for me to stay. So as soon as I um, I told them that I was going to go back, um, stay a few more weeks with my aunt and then come back to Perugia when the semester started. And they said, great, sounds good. We'll see you then. And while I was away with my aunt after I had made an agreement with them, that's when they met Meredith and she took the other bedroom That the one that was uh, slightly larger and overlooking the valley. And it really was this ideal situation because not only was I close to the university, not only was I in this beautiful house, but I was also surrounded by people who were just the right kinds of people for me to be around like there was another foreign exchange student but also there were these two italian women who were young women who could you know give us the lay of the land a little bit and like you know i remember talking to filomena about like should i buy italian shoes and she was like heck yeah go to this place and so i went and bought some italian boots because she recommended like there there are these It was truly an ideal situation, um, and I felt very lucky. But then, six weeks later, the unthinkable happened. Yes. Then the but, the big uh, but, uh, six weeks. After I arrived and moved in and everything was going great, you know, me and the roommates made friends with the guys who lived in the uh, apartment downstairs from us in the cottage, we went out dancing, we had dinners, we Meredith and I go, went grocery shopping together, all of that was plugging along wonderfully. And then Halloween rolled around and I was hanging out with Raffaele Selecito, a guy that I had met four days before and Meredith had gone out with her British friends to go out dancing. The next day, November 1st, I was hanging out with Meredith in our you know, sort of like kitchenette main shared area. She was telling me about how she was gonna go watch a movie with her friends and and hang out. And I made plans to go with Raffaele to visit a um, a local town that was nearby. And we, I left and spent the night with Raffaele. The next day, I come home and find that my house is a crime scene because a local burglar broke into our home. And slowly over the course of the day, I realized that not only has our house been broken into, but Meredith has been murdered. And that is... It was the most surreal experience because the last thing that I thought would happen to me or anyone around me was that someone would get hurt, that someone would be brutally raped and murdered. I, you know, I came home that morning thinking I was going to take a shower and change my clothes and go out with my new boyfriend, and instead I came home and found things amiss in my house that I didn't really know how to explain. My front door was wide open. There was some speckles of blood in the bathroom. There was feces left in the toilet of the other bathroom. And I brought Raffaele over to help me sort of understand what was going on. I was calling my roommates trying to figure out what was going on. Two of them weren't answering their phones. Meredith and um, Laura, Philomena did answer her phone. She said that I should call the police. We found a broken window. We found that Philomena's room had been ransacked. And we found that Meredith's door was locked. And when the police arrived, the police kicked in the door of Meredith's room and found her body. And A sort of really important big thing that happened in that moment was there were, by that point when the police arrived at the house there were two of us roommates there, Philomena and and me. Laura was in Rome and she was on her way back and Meredith had not been accounted for. She wasn't answering her phones. In fact, the police arrived and said that they had found her phones in a garden and Philomena was there next to Meredith's door when the police kicked in her door and she saw into Meredith's room she saw all the blood she saw Meredith's body um, it was partially covered by a blanket but her foot was sticking out and it was very clear that something horrendous had happened and Philomena freaked out she started screaming she started crying um, she was she was out of her mind and hysterical and everyone started yelling in rapid Italian and all of us were pushed out of the house I had not seen into Meredith's bedroom and I didn't fully know what was going on and so you know people look back and you know look back at those images of me outside of the um, outside of the house as it's being you know shut off as a crime scene and all these police are coming and going and Philomena is off to the side getting hugged by her boyfriend and she's crying and hysterical and meanwhile I'm off to another side being hugged by Raffaele not crying and not hysterical and that was in large part because I wasn't yet sure of what was going on and I had not seen with my own eyes the horror of what happened and To make a long story short, um, there was a three-second clip that the local news reporters who descended upon, you know, our little drive-in, they took a video of Raffaele hugging me and giving me a kiss. He was trying to comfort me. I was cold. I was confused. I was scared. He gave me a kiss. And That moment of my life has been replayed over and over and over again, zoomed in, slow motion, examined, talked about for years and has been used to blame me for my own wrongful conviction. People saying to me, it's your fault that everyone suspected you because look at what you're doing you are clearly not upset that Meredith has been murdered. And it's, you know, been a, it's taken me a long time to unpack and dismantle the kind of self-blame that I've felt for a long time when the world blames you for the bad things that happen to you and you're treated like a crazy person, you start to internalize that. And it's taken me a long time to step back and say, actually, I didn't do anything wrong. And I never should have been suspected because my boyfriend gave me a hug and gave me a kiss.
0: When all of this first happened, your instinct was to help the police find Meredith's killer.
2: As soon as I realized that something bad had happened and I asked Raffaele to call the police for me because I didn't even know how to call the police in Italy. It's not 911. My 100% goal was to cooperate and figure out what happened. And then when I discovered that Meredith had been murdered and that there was a killer on the loose. Like I wasn't sure if this was a serial killer, potentially, who was targeting our house and everyone in our house. And so here I was feeling like I have no idea who this person is or why they did what they did. All I know is they did something horrible, and now they're walking around. And the police are telling me that there might be anything that I remember, anything possible that I could remember that could bring lead them to the killer is f- necessary for me to do so I had to basically spend I spent hours and hours and hours with them in the in um, in the police office trying to remember any small detail any any like off-color comment or any weird glance that someone gave towards Meredith or like any person that I thought could be suspicious. I I shared with them everything that I possibly could know. I gave them every phone number I had. I tried to describe every person I had ever seen talk to Meredith or come close to our home. I, I tried to think of anything. And the scary part was like at that time, I had no idea who could have done this. Like, there, it. yes, there were some of those, like, weird moments. Like, that guy who brought me on his Vespa to his house, I brought him up to the police. And I was like, "Here, there's a guy, I don't really know what his name is, but, like, he brought me on his Vespa and, like, maybe he had something to do with it. He knew where my house was. Like, I was thinking of anything, but I could not imagine who would want to hurt Meredith. Like, it was beyond me because... I had Meredith was a really sweet person. She had lots of friends. like it it just didn't make any sense, which was made it even scarier. But here I was thinking, the police are telling me anything you can remember because you're Meredith's roommate and because you're Meredith's friend and because you came home and discovered the crime scene, you are our most important witness. You are the most important person to this investigation. We need you so i sub- I submitted myself to hours and hours of questioning when they asked me to come back to the apartment and look through our our kitchen drawers to like see if there were any knives missing. I did that. I did everything that they possibly asked me to do even when it felt like I was being pushed um in an unfair way like I was being asked the same questions over and over and over again and and it was not, you know, I was often doing it with people who didn't really speak English very well, and I didn't speak Italian very well, so a lot of time I felt like there were misunderstandings happening. And meanwhile, I had no idea that my phones had been tapped and that the police were listening to every conversation I had with my mother. And my they knew that my mother was planning on arriving in Italy to help me find a place to stay. And the day before that she was due to arrive, they called me in for an overnight questioning, they called it. It was an overnight interrogation where they proceeded to lie to me, to slap me, to keep me awake through the night until I broke and I was willing to sign statements implicating myself and others in the crime.
3: And now for a quick break. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be.
0: Your previous boss, Patrick, the situation with you kind of being forced to point your finger at anyone at that point, you'd been basically beaten by the police, both mentally and physically. They kept you up all night. They created a a situation where you were literally mentally ill. I mean, with insomnia and pain. And they found this text on your phone that had said, from Patrick saying, you did not need to go to work that day. And you said, see you later. Great. Have a good evening, which is a very American term for see ya. Bye. And they interpreted as you are going to see Patrick that night.
2: Yeah. And what's interesting is like, they didn't know who Patrick was. They just knew that there was a person on my phone who was named Patrick, who They didn't even have his text message from me because I I think my phone automatically deleted it, but they had my response to him, which was to say, oh, have a good night. See you later. And they interpreted that to mean I was Making an appointment with Patrick the night of the murder. And when I didn't tell them that I had met with Patrick the night of the murder. In fact, I said I did not meet with anyone the night of the murder. They said, you are either lying or you have amnesia. You don't remember that you met with this person because it was so traumatizing. You you must have witnessed him murdering Meredith, and it was so traumatizing that you can't remember. So remember, remember, remember the truth. And they would not accept that what I was telling them was true. They said that I was making it up because I didn't remember the truth and that until, I did re- until and unless I did remember the truth, I would never see my family again.
1: You know, you, you've written, and, and I also know this, I'm a lawyer in my background, and you know, I think a very few people understand how many people who are innocent confess to a crime. Yeah. It's a really high statistic. It's like 25%. Oh, yeah.
2: What can you say about that? Yeah, it was hard. Like. The amount of times that I've been told like this what happened in that interrogation room is your fault. It's because you're you're a racist or you're a liar. Like the and instead of thinking like, in that situation, I had no control over what was happening. And I was it was the most terrifying experience of my life. And you're right. There are so many proven, so the case like when we talk about innocent people confessing to crimes that they didn't commit and how there's this great statistic out there that says that one in 4 wrongful convictions involved a false confession or a false admission by the person who was wrongly convicted. What that means is that in cases where they have proven through DNA evidence that the person who was convicted was actually innocent. In one in four of those cases, that person also falsely confessed. What that doesn't even bring into the calculation is the number of cases where there is no DNA evidence. And you can't definitively say, oh, it's, you know, the DNA belonged to this other person. Like in my case, you know, the Innocence Project would say, Yes, there's DNA in your case, but there's also all these other issues and blah, 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 Like, I don't even think that they would count my false confession at, in, in that statistic because they like in those cases, very often there are cases in um, the wrongful conviction world that involve men who are accused of crimes because men who are accused are often accused of like an actual crime occurred, and the police went after the wrong person. And then years later, they re-examine the DNA and realize, oh, that DNA doesn't belong to the person who was implicated. It's somebody else. That's what happens in a lot of men's cases. In most women's cases, it's that's not how women are convicted. Most women are convicted of things that were not crimes in the first place. So a great example of this is their children die of, they fall off uh, out of a tree or they have some disease that no one was aware of. The kid dies and that accidental or natural death is said to be a criminal act that the mother murdered her children. And, It's not a case where women can be determined to be uh, definitively innocent through DNA evidence. Instead, what you have to do is prove that it wasn't a crime. And I'm not even sure. And like in a lot of those cases, because women have been so traumatized already by the death of their child, they are very, very suggestible and susceptible to false confession. Um, And it's really tragic. So uh, the amount of things that I've learned about the police interrogation room, it's like one of my biggest issues with the criminal justice system is like that private space where the police have all of the control and they can lie to you and manipulate you and how innocent people are are particularly susceptible to being manipulated in that space because they're told, well, you're helping us, aren't you? You don't want a lawyer because that just makes things difficult for you. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why innocent people falsely confess. Like one of them is they just think they're being railroaded and that no one will believe them that they're innocent. And so they just say, "Okay, if I say that I'm guilty, maybe I'll get a lesser sentence and it's just a logical calculation. Like they see that they're being wrongly convicted, they see that they're being suspected, that no one believes them, and they think if I go in front of a judge and a jury, no one's gonna believe me, so I'm just gonna say that I did it and hopefully get some mercy. Other people confess um, wrongfully because they're trying to save someone, they are trying to protect someone. And then there are those of us, like myself, who falsely confess because we were coerced, because the police either made us believe that we were involved in the crime by telling us that we have amnesia, that we blacked out, like the and, and then implant a kind of false memory. They suggest to us what might've happened. And then we say, okay, yeah, sure, that's what happened. I think I'm remembering that now. Like that is the other side of it. And that is the most dangerous one because if you make someone feel crazy and you make someone believe even just for a brief moment that they're, they might like, basically that what you are saying is true is true and not what they know to be true. People don't know how to interpret that in a courtroom. A jury doesn't know what it feels like to be made to feel crazy and to say things that you don't really believe and don't really remember. And it is devastating to wrongfully convicted people when when they take it to the courtroom. And it was devastating in my own case. And now for a quick break.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Businesses that use ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions Apply.
0: At what point did you realize you were going to jail for a crime you didn't commit?
2: I had already been in jail for a few days, so even after they put handcuffs on me, even after they had stripped me naked and photographed my entire body and brought me to a prison cell, the entire time they never told me that I was suspected of being involved in Meredith's murder. They always, always told me that I was a witness and that they were taking me somewhere for my own protection, and that I would see my mom momentarily. So I spent a few days in prison before I was brought in front of a judge for the first time, and it was that judge who finally told me, you are suspected of murdering Meredith Kircher. How do you plea? And that was the first time I ever met my lawyers. I still hadn't seen my mom. It sounds stupid, um, but like I had a—I literally jaw drop because like that was not what the police had told me. That was not what I understood to be happening. I was shocked, but I was also trapped. And there was—I no longer had a voice. I—I kind of never had a voice and a say of, over what was happening to me. But that's when I really, really understood, like. The police were ne- never believed me, and I was, I was brought through something. I was coerced, and now here I am, and I don't understand why. You spent the next four years in prison for a crime you didn't commit.
0: How did you get through those four years?
2: It's always difficult for an innocent person. It was really interesting because it's not like we didn't know what happened to Meredith. Like this was one of those weird wrongful conviction cases where the person who actually raped and murdered her was discovered. And there was plenty of evidence against him from very early on, not immediately, not before I was arrested, but within weeks after I was arrested, there was DNA and there were fingerprints and there were footprints and all of them traced back to this local burglar named Rudy Gade, who had a history of breaking and entering into people's homes. And he had fled the country. When they recaptured him, he had wounds on his hands from being cut from the struggle. Like he, he there was just there was his DNA inside Meredith's body inside of her purse where her money had been stolen. Like there was All of this, his, his, it was his feces that was found in the toilet, like it, his DNA and evidence against him was everywhere. And so that was within weeks of me being arrested. And so I spent the first two years of my imprisonment leading up to the final verdict in my case thinking This has all been a big misunderstanding. Like, we know what happened. We know who did this. It's not like, you know, there's confusion. Like, uh, you know, there's no DNA evidence placing me in the scene of the crime. Like, let's it's obvious what happened. Like, I don't understand why the, the prosecution is pursuing a case against me when there's no evidence. But, you know, clearly they arrested me. So they're pursuing this case and they feel like they have to maybe like, who knows? It was surreal to me that the prosecution decided to continue with this case regardless of what the evidence said. But a deep, deep part of me was not just hopeful but certain that the rest of the world saw through this, that ultimately the truth would win out and that common sense would would lead to a just outcome in this case. And it was only after two years of my imprisonment when I received a guilty verdict and I was sentenced to more time in prison than the person who raped and murdered Meredith, that the entire, like I had this insane existential crisis of, oh my God, the truth doesn't matter. No one cares what the truth is. And so this life that I have been living that I feel like it was this sort of limbo space where I'm waiting to get to relive my life again, that's not what this is. This is my life now. Like my identity and my life is the world thinks I'm a monster and treats me like a monster and locks me away as a monster. And that's my life. And I'm 22. So I had to start thinking, how do I live that life? How do I make that life worth living? And a lot of that just meant looking around me, looking at this very sad um, space around me, this very limited space around me, full of broken and, and hurt individuals who had hurt other people and, and thinking like, okay, this is my community now. What is my role in this community? What what can I offer this community? And so I, I figured that out. I realized that I was one of the only people in that who was a prisoner who could read and write. I was one of the people who was fluent by that point in Italian and English, and so I could serve as a translator. I spent a lot of time reading and writing letters to family and... Trying to feel like that was enough.
1: I think a lot of people would give up. What do you think it was within you that allowed you to even ask that question? Like, how do I build a life here in this place? I don't know if this is
2: like a happy way to think about it, but like, I always knew that I could give up, right? Like, nothing was stopping me from giving up. And If I really, really wanted to, I probably could have figured out a way to kill myself. And that was weirdly um, a comforting thought to me, because one of the most difficult parts of it was feeling trapped. Like I was not just trapped in a prison cell and not just trapped by these circumstances, but I felt trapped in my own life. I feel like I didn't have control over who I was to the world anymore. And so like feeling trapped was one of the worst, like, feelings about it. And so I I allowed myself to acknowledge that in a fundamental way, in a very physical way, I am not necessarily trapped. I can always escape in this one way. The other way was to realize that there were, like, I was very, very aware, acutely aware of what had been taken from me. And that made me acutely aware of what hadn't been taken from me. And the thing that hadn't been taken from me was my own mind. I was the one who still maintained 100% control over how to process what was happening to me. So, yes, I could not control where my body was or what was happening to my body. I couldn't control who was around me. I couldn't control what I was eating, what I was drinking, everything about my life I couldn't control, but I could control what I did about that. And that sort of forced me into this almost Buddhist space of, of just like, embracing that like sense of control and taking responsibility for it too. Because I knew that because I still had control over it, what I did with what I still had a control over was the one thing that defined who I was. And I did not want to be someone who indulged in fantasies of revenge or in bitterness and anger. I wanted to be someone who survived, who made the best of a bad situation. And a huge part of that was because I was never satisfied by the idea that The reason why this was happening to me is because there are good people in the world and there are bad people in the world, and bad people do bad things to good people. That never rang true to me because I I, I just intuitively knew that no one in the prosecutor's office was sitting there in their office cackling evilly about how they were going to put an innocent girl in prison. That was not what was happening. So instead, I wanted to understand how people could be doing this to me and thinking they were doing the right thing. And that question has been something that I have pondered for over a decade. And it is alongside the question of how do you regain agency over your own life when it is... Drastically limited And how do you reclaim your identity After it has been So Completely Stolen
0: One of your uh, Fellow prisoners who you were close with Called your optimism Kind of like a Disney-like Optimism (laughs) How you see the world Have you maintained that Since getting out of that situation?
2: I do get accused of being very Disney (laughs) princess-like Um, like and in for like funny little things too. Like you know what you know when you're like walking along, like walking outside, and like someone is walking their dog or like there's a cat in a yard, and like sometimes the dog or the cat will just like run away when they see you. Animals don't run away when they see me; they always come to me. So in a weird like you know Snow White effect kind of thing. Like I don't know what to attribute <laughs> that to, but like it's <laughs> I have like a weird like animal cuddle superpower for some reason. Um, but, yeah, I think that, like, I don't know if I would call it optimism because in a, some ways my mom has, like, grieved the loss of a very optimistic side of me where I, like, the I, the part of me that's like, everything's going to be okay because the world's great and everyone's awesome. Like, that part of me that was a huge Part of me, as a child and as a young adult, before all of this happened, that is not quite me today. Like I, I regularly experience sadness in a way that I haven't before. I didn't before, and like grief, is not just a thing that happens to you, but it's an ongoing companion that that you carry with you always. But that isn't to say that. I don't think that there is a way to live, not just, you know, survive, but to like live well with grief and to be a better person because of grief. I do think that that is not just possible, but like an opportunity that I always want to grasp.
1: Stay tuned for part two next week. We'll hear about Amanda's struggle to lead a normal life, how some people will always see her as guilty, how she met her husband, motherhood, and more. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
0: We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast.
1: What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co, and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com.
0: Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns.